can we actually reverse climate change? Where should we be focusing our attention for a regenerative future? And how do we fight against discrimination towards the queer community? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Chad Frischman, the lead researcher and principal architect of the methodology and models behind Project Drawdown. In this episode, we talk about why we shouldn't distract ourselves with silver tech bullets and instead focus on a system of solutions, how to live a more awakened life, and bravery in the face of discrimination. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the podcast. Here we get into the minds of some of the most conscious humans around the world to understand how our actions affect our mental well-being, happiness, and the planet. Because self and planetary healing is really an inside-out job. So let's unpack this human experience together so that we can live wide awake. Frischman is a coalition builder and systems strategist who works to reverse global warming and build a new regenerative future with cascading benefits to the environment and to human well-being. He has a background in public policy, human rights, sustainable development, and environmental conservation. Project Drawdown, where he's the lead researcher and principal architect of the methodology, is one of the most exciting developments in the fight against climate change. It is a comprehensive plan to reverse global warming, comprising of 80 scalable solutions to avoid greenhouse gas emissions and sequester carbon. It was also the subject of a best-selling book from 2017. Chad's a regular speaker on global stages, including TED, where his talk has over 2 million views. He's also graced the stages of the University of Oxford, Harvard, COP23 in Bonn, the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, 1% for the Planet Global Summit, among many others. Thank you so much, Chad, for joining me. Um, really nice to see you. I know it's late for me and early for you, but we men- managed to make it work with our time difference. So thanks for making the time. You had a really interesting career before you started and informed you know, Project Drawdown. So I'd love for you to walk us through your journey and how you were drawn to saving people on the planet. Well, first of all, Stephanie, thank you so much for having me here today. And It's a pleasure to be back speaking to the green is the new black community all over the world. So so thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you all again. So yeah, most people think that I'm a climate scientist because of all the work that I've done in designing these models, integrated models to evaluate, you know, climate solutions. And the reality is I'm not a climate scientist. I actually have a very different type of background. I actually think that's important and valuable in coming into the solution space. My background actually is in the nexus of between sustainable development, local and indigenous peoples, rights and well-being, and environmental conservation. And it's in that nexus when you start working in that space that you come immediately to the issue of climate change. These are the frontline issues that are going to be affected most by a changing climate. And so my journey started actually even in, even before I was in that space around working in sustainable development and, and rights, human rights issues, I was a historian. I actually was working on a PhD looking at the formation of the early modern state, how hierarchies and power structures were forming in the 16th century, and how people were using art and media as propaganda to perpetuate those power structures. My interest was how do we, how do these form and what we learn from that? How can we dismantle that? How can we learn for the future? But it was actually a trip to sub-Saharan Africa. I took a sabbatical from that work in 2008 and I spent uh, two months backpacking through, through four countries, through Zambia, Mozambique, Malawi, and Tanzania. And it was during that time that I really fell in love with the environment and something that I had always been personally interested in and, and loved growing up as a, you know, uh, throughout my life. But it was in that experience in Africa and really seeing the intersection between these amazing local people, people that I met along the way, the communities, the, the joy, the connection that they had together and with the environment around them. And in parallel, seeing the degradation of that environment and, and, and the economic 
inequalities that were perpetuated by the very power structures I was studying back from a historical perspective were in reality the coming to a fruit, kind of really, you know, coming to a, it was really, really touching to see how uh, these structures had created the very challenges that people were facing today. And, and in connection to that, they, they continued degradation of the environment. So I came away from that really changed. And I went back to my university in England and I put my PhD on suspension, put it on hold. Five days later, I flew to California. Five days later, I flew back to California and decided to change my career from 16th century here, history, looking at power structures and hierarchies to dedicating my life to people and planet. And again, of course, that journey along the way brought me right, as I said, right, right to the front lines of climate change and looking at climate change adaptation and mitigation strategies at the local scale. And quickly, you know, one thing led to another and I got connected with Paul Hawken and Amanda Joy Ravenhill as we were forming this audacious idea for Project Drawdown. And, and I took the odd opportunity to create, uh, you know, a framework to look at a system of solutions that solve for climate and along the way can help people and planet towards to create and, and done their journey towards a regenerative future. So that, that's a little bit about my journey. And it's a little bit unusual, I think, for most folks in the climate space, but one that I think really helps inform my perspective on how we can really change systems for, for the uh, improvement of the uh, uh, betterment of well-being for all people and planet. Thank you. It's so interesting to hear more about your history. And we're definitely going to come back to understanding more about the systems that you're changing with everything you're doing with Project Drawdown. But I was interested when you said, you know, that you had within five days decided to completely change your entire life after having that experience. Were you always like that? You know, just very sort of... uh, able to just follow your heart like that and just make bold decisions and, and claims? Or was this sort of like a big once in a lifetime for you? <laughs> no, I think, I think it is part of my nature to be, uh, you know, some people are mission driven and they will pursue their goals to no end until to the, to the very end to achieve that one mission. I find myself mission to be mission derived. The things that I do come from the mission that empowers me. And so that's that's a heart-centered approach, not a, not a head-centered, not, a, not, a, not just a pure head-centered. It's a heart-centered. That means that my mission is really driven to lead people up and to, to help people, guide people, to steward people towards that journey down the pathway to a regenerative future to break down hierarchies, to break these institutions that perpetuate inequality and inequity in the world today. And whether that my heart drives me towards an academic historical perspective or, or, or working with people directly you know, on the ground or to create these big global frameworks, that is how I, 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 I operate, is, is through that, that, that mission, being mission-derived. Uh, everything I do, no matter what it's going to do, is going to serve the mission, and that's that's how I think uh, how I operate. And uh, and not everybody does that. Not everybody's able to do that. But um, I'm I'm lucky, I think, to be able to be to be able to follow my heart, and it's a privilege to be able to do that. And not everybody in the world is able to do that. So I feel very lucky that I'm able to uh, pursue that and to follow the pathway as the twists and turns uh, happen along the way. As long as we're, you know, you know, the, the, the mission that drives that I'm derived with, I follow that towards the towards, towards the horizon to where to the future that we actually want. Yeah, I, how beautiful is that that you're able to follow your heart and not your head? I think a lot of people get stuck in the headspace. I'm certainly one of them who falls into that trap very, very often. So I think that's a really amazing that you are able to actually do that and to do that so wholeheartedly. And I think it shows in your work, you know, when you spoke at our festival, the Conscious Festival last year, I just remember in an instant, like it was, I think, 5 a.m. or something stupid for you. And you were just so full of life and positive. And, you know, I just was so amazed because you know so much 
about everything that's going on and you're literally fighting against such massive systems with the work that you're doing and yet you have one of the most positive infectious energies around it all and I just absolutely love that and every time I've spoken to you it, it's it doesn't waver it's not like a performance for you like you are just full of hope and positivity so what is it that keeps you going were you always like this or do you just yeah I'm just curious like how do you maintain that level of positivity and energy in your life that first of all thank you I appreciate that it's always it's always uh, uh, nice to to hear that that kind of energy is received well because sometimes when you are optimistic and you are so hopeful people maybe turn off a little bit sometimes. Some people get inspired, but some people are like, nah, this this person, you know, it's not real, it's not reality, it's not it's not grounded in, in, in the rational truth. But what I think is that I blend that heart-centered approach with with the with the head. And we need that. We need to not just be driven by heart and not just be driven by head. And frankly, we need all three. We need to be head, heart, hands, and health in the, in the four H's. And, the, and I really believe that. We need that. We need to be thinking analytically and really using our, our head to, to bring together the knowledge of the brilliance of humanity, to bring that together because humanity is brilliant. We have to we forget that sometimes. We can be incredibly dumb at times, yes, but we are a brilliant species. We do amazing things and we are driven by our hearts, right? We do have this, this capacity to be incredibly uh, heart-centered and to be giving and caring and loving. And we have so much ability with our hands to do things, to really do things. So we're a unique species. We're a brilliant species. We have the head, heart, hands. And when we combine that with, with health and really understanding both our personal health and the health of the planet, I think we can do amazing things. And that that's what fuels me. That's what keeps me optimistic is knowing that we have the capacity to solve the challenges. We have the capacity to change the system, to break down the hierarchies, the patriarchy, the, the power structures that perpetuates, because they're kept on, they're maintained by a relatively few. But the humanity as a whole is brilliant. Humanity, humanity as a whole is beautiful and, and ugly. And they're everything. We're dumb and brilliant. We're ugly and beautiful, all combined together. But but. It's, it's, it's the, the belief that at the end of the day, we have the capacity to change things, to make things better, to shift the system so that we're really placing well-being for humanity and for the planet at the heart of everything we do. I think that's possible. And when we believe that, then all these solutions that we talk about implementing renewable energy systems and waste management systems and sustainability and looking at our built environments and, and regenerative agriculture, all these solutions suddenly become really, really possible. And so that's what fuels me. And when folks come and say, oh, you're being too optimistic, I say, okay, you, you think that? No problem. I'm grounded in reality. Let me show you the data. Let me show you the science. Let me show you the reality and show you that maybe you're being too pessimistic. And we need to be optimistic. We have to be seeing the opportunities for the future in everything we do. And it's not just for climate, because it's for everything else. We have to go beyond climate. And when we see these as opportunities, man, humanity can do just about everything. We can do anything we put our mind to. We have the capacity to do that when we, we, we combine our head, heart, hands, and really think about and, and take on the health of our, our own health and the health of the planet. And that's, that, that's what I mean by well-being, really bringing that to the core of what we do. Yeah, which is so inspiring. And just, uh, yeah, hearing you speak about it. And I love the fact that you're like, yeah, let me show you the data. And we'll see. <laughs> see, you can see not to be so pessimistic. So let's hone in on that in a little bit and talk a bit about understanding Project Drawdown and what it is that you do. You know, it's really often referred to with a lot of hope and excitement in the fight against climate change. So maybe you can unpack a little bit more about what drawdown even means and what the work you're doing. And then later we can go more into the data aspect. Sure. Sure. So, so drawdown is actually a point in time. It's a, it's a point in time when atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases begin to decline on a year to year basis, right? So it's that point when we're taking out more of the heat trapping gases that are causing global warming 
and in turn climate change, we're taking out more of those gases than we're putting in uh, the atmosphere. And and you know the proposition there is is really pretty simple. If we can change that concentration of those those, those gases, we can actually stop global warming and eventually start the long process of reversing it to a more sustainable level. And that is possible with real existing technologies and practices that are scientifically valid, already being implemented. All of these are already being implemented. There's so many. And uh, economically viable. And the great thing about this, and this is the important thing, is that they have a series of cascading benefits to human and planetary well-being when implemented with justice, equity, and inclusion at the core of what we do. But they, they have all of these cascading benefits, and that's my intention. Uh, we want to be thinking about solutions that solve for climate and stack functions by solving for many other global challenges because the co-benefits are better than are, are much more higher than the, than the than the trade-offs. And when we implement them as a system of solutions, this is what Project Drawdown sort of the core initial premise is about, is when you implement those solutions as a system, we can solve for climate, solve the climate emergency that we're facing, and along the way, solve for air pollution, for human health and well-being, for providing inclusive economic growth, ensuring that all people have access to clean renewable energy, ensuring healthy, nutritious diets and enough food for, for all people on the planet, for protecting and restoring biodiversity in our ecosystems, for returning carbon to the soil and, 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 and improving and, uh, and restoring soil health and productivity, benefiting our farmers, benefiting all people on this planet. And when you do that as a system of solutions, you can solve for so many things. And so Project Drawdown was initiated in 2014 by Paul Hawk and Amanda Ravenhill and myself coming together um, and to talk about head, heart, and hands. I mean, you really, three of us, we, when we came together, it was like this magical moment where I think that's the secret sauce of Project Drawdown, when we can bring together these minds working together to bring and aggregate the humanity's knowledge, so the data, science behind these solutions, and an integrated system so we can really evaluate the impact uh, and really understand the potential implementation of those solutions. But not only that, how do we communicate that? How do we create the language so that the science can be understood in useful and meaningful ways to decision makers, whether that's a policymaker or an individual, uh, an individual in a community, whether that's a you know a retired school teacher or a student, whether that's you know a farmer or uh, an urban uh, uh, building owner, a re- you know residential or commercial building owner, owner, whatever the case is, that we need to make sure that we're able to communicate that science. It's grounded in science, but in a way that is, you know, going to be accessible, going to be inspiring, and actually allow people to use their hands to take action, to do things in the world, to implement solutions in their own lives, in their communities, whatever that might be, whether that's, you know, whether it's trying to implement solutions in their business or again in, in policy making or whatever the case might be, to, to make that really accessible. So I think Project Drawdown. You know, when we started Project Drawdown, it was how do we bring together that knowledge and create a bridge to action? How do we create a bridge from science or research to action in ways that are actually going to be inspiring and meaningful? And that's very rare. If you think about, you know, the various modeling organizations and research organizations, scientific organizations, one of the things they lack is the inspiration, oftentimes. Not always. I mean, there are some really, there's a lot of great, great work being done, of course. But it's, it's that, that translation process, that, that way of communicating, that way of crafting the message and the media in a way that's going to truly impact people's livelihoods. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce of Project Drawdown. And of course, we've evolved over the last seven years. Over 100 researchers have taken part in the project from every walk of life, from every discipline you can imagine, every generation, from retired civil servants to students just finishing their graduate degrees, from engineers to architects to policy analysts to human rights, people working in human rights, to farmers, foresters, energy system, transportation. We really wanted to bring together the diversity of perspectives from all over the world, from every generation, every discipline, together to look at and analyze and aggregate humanity's knowledge about the solutions to the great challenges that we're facing today. And I think 
these are some of the hallmark characteristics of Project Drawdown. But of course, Drawdown is an organization and we have to go beyond climate. We have to go beyond thinking this and really unleash that framework out to the world and, and as, a, as a, a public good. And so we're working, I work a dedicated part of my, my, my mission-derived uh, approach is how do we take that knowledge and really make it um, open, free, usable, in a free and open, as a public good? How do we make this whole framework, data, you know, approach that we're doing totally unleash it out to the world in a way that allows everybody to take it up, use it, adapt it for their own decision making, for their own work, and extend, I said, I said beyond climate to all these other ish areas uh, that we, we need to address from biodiversity loss, human rights, health and well-being, green, inclusive economic growth, and so on. So... So that's a little bit, and then it's a little bit long-winded, but it's a little bit what we do at Project Drawdown, and a little bit what I do beyond Project. Yeah, thank you for unpacking that. And so just to hone in a little bit more to understand the architecture and the, the data focus, how was the data used to actually define what are the, where we should really be spending the most mm-hmm. amount of time? Because I believe there's over 80 solutions, and but they're kind of ranked, right? There's like a different weighting, I believe, on some of them over others. So how was that created and, and where, you know, what kind of data did you use and, and how is it sort of structured in, in that aspect? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to go dive deep into the models. I love that. So what we did is we, we actually designed modeling system, a, a way to uh, uh, do a sort of a simulation of what prognostication, a, a future projection of what the world could look like comparing different kinds of worlds, different scenarios of possibility. And we, act, we, we built these models to, to reflect both the potential climate impacts in terms of emissions reductions, possibility of these solutions, various technologies and practices, and comparing that to what we would have to do anyway. So comparing that to technologies and practices that are, that are contributing to the problem and comparing those to alternatives that are part of the solution. How do we define a solution? Well, first of all, we, we scoped out many, 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 many hundreds of possible different technologies and practices, and we had a set of criteria. Is it scientifically valid to have a direct impact on the atmosphere? So you have to remember, there needs to be enough data, enough science to back up the, the assertion that these solutions actually have a substantive impact on, 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 on emissions. So first and foremost, has to be scientifically validated. Two, it has to be financially viable or economically viable, which means that within the period of study, we have the return. there has to be a return on that investment to make a, a good business case. And that's the case for, for most, most of the solutions. Three, it has to be currently uh, being implemented, uh, scaled in different parts of the world. So we don't want to pick some technologies and practices that, you know, are, are on the horizon, that are on the pipeline, that have yet to really have traction in markets. We want to really look at existing technologies and practices, what we already know works. Um, and that's really important sort of premise is what, we, what is already there, what's already working, what can we scale even more now? And then uh, a fourth criteria is do the co-benefits outweigh the trade-offs? Are the positive externalities more than higher than the, the negative externalities? So we do this assessment, and finally, we do we do a back of the napkin kind of uh, evaluation. Is do we think that this technology may do more than a, roughly about a, a half a gigaton of uh, cumulative avoided or sequestered avoided emissions or sequestered uh, CO two over a thirty-year period? Once we take those hundred hundreds of solutions and go through that sort of criteria, we, we then take the, 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 the results and we say, okay, that got whittled down to about 85 or so solutions um, in, our, in our initial assessment. Then we do the real research. Then we, then we capitalize on those hundred research, the drawdown research fellows uh, that have taken part over several different cohorts over the, over the last seven years. And we, 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 we take those researchers and we say, here's a solution. Now go collect as much data as you possibly can. Do a technical assessment. Review the literature. Aggregate humanity's knowledge and produce a technical assessment. And as much data to these models that we've created that, that look at the financial implications and look at those emissions accounting implications for these solutions 
um, in a consistent uh, and uh, comprehensive, systemic, fully integrated model uh, that does a quantitative assessment. And then run those models and see what are the results. Does the solution actually meet the minimum criteria to stay as one of our solutions? Um, does it meet all those criteria to check all those boxes still after we've done our initial assessment? And, uh, and that data that we collect is a meta-analysis. So, so we really look to the literature to, to input as many data points for every input that goes into our model, every adoption prognostication, every mar market prognostication comes from external sources. Again, this is the idea of let's aggregate humanity's brilliance together and, and in a comprehensive, concerted, and, and structured form, how do we evaluate the, the, what humanity knows about these solutions and run the models and see what happens? So we don't prescribe any of these solutions. We, don't, we do an initial assessment to cull it down to, 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 to see what's possible. Then we run uh, the models through, through the collection and aggregation of thousands and thousands of data points. And rerun the models and see what happens, and and that's where the that list of solutions that you that you you mentioned, that's simply the a product of the potential of those solutions over a thirty year period, given what the world is telling us, giving us what scientists, researchers, other external sources are telling us is possible, and doing so from an integrated systemic approach, making sure that we. Look at the system as a, look at the system as a whole, dealing with system dynamics, interaction effects, stock and flow issues. So, so and avoiding double counting. So, so all of our solutions in that list are all a function of the implementation of all of the other solutions because it's all part of an integrated system. You need all of those solutions. You need to be implementing them all in parallel. That result is a function of the system as a whole, and and as a function of as I said the aggregation of all of as much data as possible. And I think, I think Project Drawdown and our team has one of the largest data sets for these solutions that, that exist in the world today in terms of just the sheer number of data points for every input that goes into, into our models. Now, these models aren't perfect. They're not meant to be. They're not going to tell us an exact result. Those results are going to change. They're going to shift depending on new data, new implementation, how ambitious we are with different solutions, improved efficiencies, improved technological development. All of those things are going to shift the numbers over time. But what the models do give us is sort of a sort of a possible future, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in the direction of what is possible, the range of possibility of, of what we can achieve. And that's really important so that we can set the marker on the horizon of where we actually need to go once we are able to see the potential of these solutions what they can achieve what generally is possible with understanding that they're going to be wrong and that's fine but it helps us get us on that pathway and understanding what are the technologies and practices that are, are required to get us there and also knowing that there's going to be some that are going to have huge massive contributions and others that are going to have small much smaller contributions but they all matter we need all of them to achieve our two degrees Celsius warming targets, our 1.5 degrees Celsius warming targets, and going beyond the climate targets to achieving other, other global goals like the sustainable development goals or creating a regenerative future. We need all of those solutions. And, and, that's, and that's really what the data is telling us, is uh, giving us that sort of marker on the horizon of where we need to go and, and what, are the, what are the pathways to get there. So what are some of the pathways that we should really be focusing on? So obviously 80 solutions is a lot. Maybe you can give us an overview of what some of the top solutions are also for individuals, but maybe also from a corporate lens. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And the first, first and foremost, I want to reiterate the point that we need all of the solutions. So when people often ask, what's your favorite solution? What's the most important solution? I say, well, all of them. The entire system of solutions is actually, to me, my most favorite solution is the system of solutions because that gets all that gets all those cascading benefits, right? That's getting us on the pathway to a regenerative future. But what's important to remember is that we can't do all of those. We can't do all those solutions. Not I can't, you can't, each individual can't do every one of those solutions. And so we need to think about the system of solutions as almost like a choose your own adventure, right? Almost like 
what are the things that are most meaningful to me that I actually have the capacity to, to, to do, capacity to have influence over? And, and, and that's important just to see because those are the pathways that are most important for, for every individual to take is what's the first step that I can take on the pathway towards the regenerative future is going to be different depending on who you are, where you're working, where you are in the world itself. And so, so all of them are important. All of them are meaningful to different types, different people. And, and as I said, for me, the entire system of solutions is meaningful, but, but let's get to some, some specific pathways. And one of the things I think that uh, is most surprising from, from, from the research that we've done is, is uh, most people think of uh, energy systems as the most important set of solutions. And it's really important because 25% of global greenhouse gases comes from electricity generation. And if we include buildings and transportation and all the other energy systems, it, it, it accounts for, the, for, for you know 76% or so of global greenhouse gases if we take that whole system. But 24% come from food that and food, uh, land and agriculture. So how are, what are, what is our relationship? How and why we use our natural resources for our own, our own consumption. And that's something that's huge. Just after electricity generation, the most, the highest global emitter is food, land, land use and agriculture. And that's really surprising to, to many people. But what's even more surprising is is not only does that show us that there's so many opportunities to reduce emissions, but this is also the sector where there's a lot of opportunities to not only reduce emissions from modern agricultural practices, which turns land into a net emitter of greenhouse gases, or are the, the types of food that we consume are high emitters like livestock, bovine uh, livestock, like, uh, bovine meat produces a lot of methane or how much we're over-consuming produces a lot of food loss and waste across the system, and that produces a lot of emissions. And if we start to see these opportunities to reduce emissions, that's huge. That, that accounts for 24% of global greenhouse gases. So these are, this is a really important sector that we have decisions that every single day that we make, three times a day we make, about what we're purchasing, you know, from, from what producers, what are our suppliers that we're choosing to purchase from, and what we are actually purchasing, so the type of foods that we're, we're consuming, and how much we're, we're, we're consuming, what we're actually are purchasing, and what we're actually consuming instead of wasting. These are decisions every one of us makes every single day and has a huge impact on avoiding emissions. But the really exciting thing is not only does it help avoid emissions, these are also solutions that help sequester emissions, right? Because these land, practice, land practices have not only the uh, avoid emission, but also help pull carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in plants, biomass, and soil organic carbon. So regenerative agricultural practices uh, not only avoids emissions, but also sequesters uh, emissions. By adopting plant-rich diet and reducing our food loss and waste, we not only avoid all those emissions, but we can avoid land uh, conversion, converting forests and and and, and into uh, and grasslands into cropland and pasture land. We can avoid that. And what that does is allow those ecosystems to not only avoid emissions from degrading uh, those ecosystems and converting, essentially converting life into carbon dioxide emissions and methane, but uh, we can actually preserve that land and allow it to continue to sequester carbon dioxide over time. So my point is, is that this sector not only uh, helps us to avoid, but also helps enhance the sinks, enhance the capacity to draw down carbon every single year through the magic and the, the miracle of photosynthesis. So this is what's really exciting. So, the, so the, the pathways that I think every person can take is really thinking and looking at their own lives and, and thinking, you know, what are the things I purchase every day? What are the foodstuffs I purchase? Where are they coming from? Are they coming from an organic producer, a regenerative agricultural producer? If you, the more we purchase those types of products, the more that sends signals across the supply chain for uh, markets to continue to stock them, for suppliers to be producing them. Consumers are very powerful in, in their choices they make every single day. And so that's hugely important. How much we're purchasing is really important. So avoiding food loss uh, and waste, about 20 to 30% of all food that's consumed is not even consumed. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. 
not even consumes, we're producing all of this food, we produce all of these emissions, all of this energy, all of this degradation of our environment, of ecosystems, to throw it away. And, to, and then, which ultimately decomposes and produces methane, which is far more potent to greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, particularly in the short term. So, so these are solutions that are readily available that we can take on every day. And we can do it with joy. No one is saying that we need to become a strict vegan. We're saying reduce how much meat you're consuming to healthy levels. Increase your consumption of beautiful plants, beautiful, healthy, delicious plants. And instead of labeling us as vegan, vegetarian, meat eating, whatever, just, just eat a healthy, nutritious, balanced diet. Reduce how much we're consuming. And in doing so, and not label yourself, but just talk about the delicious food that you're consuming. This is a way that we can be, have direct impact on stopping global warming direct impact on our environment and all those cascading benefits for helping our planet in so many different ways and doing so with joy and doing so without guilt or shame or, or fear of the choices we make. So when we own what we do, when we own the fact that we can have a healthy diet and it can be delicious and it can be amazing and we can purchase things using our power as consumer to send signals across the supply chain, and that connects to what businesses can do, of course. Businesses can really take a look at their own supply chains and say, what are the things that I can do as a business to ensure that my product that I'm selling in the marketplace is regenerative, is green, is going to actually be sustainable for people and planet? How do I look at the processes across the supply chain to ensure that we're reducing losses? And that's, that's not just for food. It's for everything else in the world, too. It's for our materials as well. How do I look at you know, the materials that I'm, I'm sourcing across the supply chain to, to, to ensure that the materials that are being produced and supplied are part of a regenerative economy instead of a, essentially a death economy. We operate right now on fossil fuels, on extraction, on exploitation of, of, of our natural environment, of Earth's resources and materials. And those materials are all based on the premise of limited resources. That's the nature of our market economy right now is limited resources, finite resources. Who owns and uses and exploits those have wealth and power. But we have alternatives that are part of a regenerative economy that, can, that is actually made of the stuff of life. We see this everywhere from bioplastics, uh, bamboo. We can produce concrete and we can produce uh, insulation that are bio-based, that are part of a regenerative economy. And so companies can really look at what they're sourcing look at each part of their supply chain and say, I am going to be a regenerative business by ensuring that my supply chain, my internal emissions are the, the most regenerative they can be. Really trying to shift the process, shift the materials that they're using and actually the products they're producing to be in part of a regenerative economy. And it is entirely possible. It takes the will to do so. And I think that is really essential for businesses to look internally and to walk the walk before they talk the talk. So once businesses make a commitment to say, I am going to become a regenerative uh, company by really addressing the, not just the, the emissions and my emissions footprint, my, my footprint on biodiversity, my footprint on and, and human health, my footprint on pollution, my footprint on all the areas that are, that need to be addressed in the world today. And I'm going to be a regenerative uh, company and I'm going to source across the supply chain real solutions. And you can take a look at those lists, the list that we produce at Drawdown. And there are actually many more solutions that are viable and that are out there. And you can say, I am going to make the conscious decision to change the way I do business and be part of the future that I actually, that we know we need and the know we want. So I'm going to choose the future. I'm going to choose that pathway. And there's profit to be had. There's a return on that investment. And there's a first mover principle. When you, the, when you make the decision, you, 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 you really reevaluate your supply chains and you transform your supply chains, you are going to be a leader of a future economy, a future market uh, economy that's based on a regenerative principles. And that's going to be very powerful, I think. And it should be, I hope, was a motivating principle for businesses. And so there are many solutions along the way. But again, it's hard to pinpoint and say, this is the one solution that matters for you. Because they're all going to be different depending on, you know, where you are in the world, what your capacity is, your what business 
you're in. What's your supply chain look like? What are the products you're producing? And it's really about finding your pathway, taking those first steps about the things that you maybe are already doing, recognizing what you already do, and then saying, what else can I do personally? And then what else can I do as part of my business or as part of my community? Um, and then take those further steps along the way. And when you start to do that, I think that's, that's the, that's going to create like the, the snowball effect of, you know, really uh, making progress and accelerating towards the regenerative future that we want is when we start to, to, to take those first initial steps and then making those commitments personally in, in, in our, in our work environments to, to embody and embrace what we, uh, that future and then take those actions because there, there's many there that exist. And it's, it's really about evaluating what, you know, what's your capacity and what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that there's a full spectrum and, you know, the idea of choosing the future you want, doing it with joy, exploring your own adventure. I think all of these things are, make it much more playful, but also exciting, you know, and not something that's a sacrifice, which I love. And, you know, especially that you're advocating for the fact that these solutions already exist. So I am also curious, on the other hand, what you think of people who are very vocal, like Bill Gates with his climate change book that came out last Last year or earlier this year, you know, talking that we can innovate ourselves out of the climate crisis, but all the work you're doing saying we actually already have the solutions. So what are your thoughts on, on that side of the camp? Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. What do I want to say to that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure. There, like when we, we at Project Journal, we also look at coming attractions. We look at future solutions on the pipeline that we, in our, in our book, uh, a book drawdown and from 2017, we profiled 20 of them. And these are potential future technologies that when they come online are going to accelerate our progress farther and faster for sure. And there it's important to remember that it's important to remember that we are going to have future technologies, right? And those are going to come online. And that's it's important to have those innovative technologies. But not one of them, not one of the ones that we profile are going to solve the climate crisis. Not one of them, not two or five or ten. When they come online, they're going to roll out over time. And they're going to have an impact on the system. We don't have time to wait for that eventual rollout. And even if we did wait for it, and even if we did say, okay, maybe there was, you know, we, you know, we're going to wait for it. Even those future technologies aren't going to do everything we need to be done. So what I say is, great, coming attractions are important. Let's come up with new technologies, sure. But we have existing technologies that already are viable, already scientifically valid, already financially have finan very good business cases. And are already scaling. So we can accelerate that, those solutions, scale them faster, scale them further, make them more efficient. Let's think about innovating the existing technologies so that they're of uh, greater resource productivity, meaning they, 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 they use less resources and less materials. Let's innovate them so that they're more, they're smaller, more efficient. They produce more for with less that they're more financially viable, that we can scale them faster, that we have the solutions today. And the more we think too much about the silver bullets that aren't going to actually materialize as silver bullets in the future, we become distracted. We distract ourselves with uh, install and delay what we need to do right now, which is address emissions that are being that are being churned out at an alarmingly uh, high rate we had hoped that through the experience with COVID-19 that we would see a reduction in emissions that happened temporarily but there's been a rebound effect already practically wiping out all the hope uh, in terms of the reduced emissions so we have a lot of work to do and if we're going to imagine the future a future silver bullet coming along the way I think we, we're, we're going to uh, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. We're going to run out of time. And we, and it's not actually going to do what it promises to do. If we take direct air capture, great example. We profiled it in, in the book drawdown. 
because it's going to be important. What direct air capture does is essentially it's a technology, it's an engineered sink, unlike our natural sinks that we have right now, tried and true, been practiced for millennia, millions of years, actually. It's millions of years of science and, and evolution that have made these natural climate solutions valid and scientifically, scientifically valid and, and, uh, and, and viable. But, but there are engineered sinks like direct air capture that, you know, through technology can, can pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, 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 and actually can be turned into useful forms. The problem is, is that there's a huge energy requirement. So, you know, it requires a lot of energy to do this, which with a, with a grid that's principally coal, oil, and gas is actually producing more emissions than it's actually pulling out of the atmosphere. And these, this technology is not currently economically viable. And it's going to take time to scale out to actually have a dent in the atmosphere. And even if we have a 20% growth rate, which is practically unheard of, it is unheard of uh, for this kind of infrastructural technology, over the next 20 years, it'll take that long before we even get to the point where we have enough enough of the technology, direct air capture out there to be making that dent. So what's my point? Point is that we're going to need direct air capture probably 2050, 2060s. And so it's important to be a continuing investment in an important technology of the future. But it's not going to solve climate change. It's not going to get us there. It's not, even at the most optimistic growth rates, it's not going to get us there. So we have the existing solutions today that really touch upon every area of human activity that are readily viable. And it's not just a band-aid. It actually has direct impact on the atmosphere, direct impact on the environment, direct impact on biodiversity, human health, jobs, economy. And when it's done right with justice and inclusion and, and, uh, and equity at its heart, we can create the system that we want, the future that we want, a regenerative system with the, with the tools that are right here in front of us. So the longer we wait, the longer we have wishful thinking about those silver bullets, the more off track we're going to be, the more off that pathway we're going to be. And so that's why I say, you know, to, to, to Bill Gates and, and his, his book on climate solutions, we can innovate our way out with new technologies that don't exist yet. Let's innovate our way out with existing technologies that already are there and make them better, more efficient, more productive, cheaper, and make them really ubiquitous throughout the world. That is how we should be innovating, not just focusing on these future technologies that aren't going to materialize. Yeah, I think it's such an incredible point and something that I think we need to shout out loud and clear to so many people even more because it's just so true. You know, let's innovate our way out with existing solutions, not these silver bullets that people are just banking on in the future. Because I also think that is a bit of a cop out. It's a bit of like, oh, yeah, no, in the future, we're going to figure it out. And, you know, it's going to be fine. And it just allows the, you know, the, the status quo right now to continue, which is also dangerous. So I think this is very clear and very positive and exciting. And let yeah, let's let's share this message more. I'm going to do a bit of a segue now because it is, I was stalking your Twitter, which is great, by the way, like lots of really, again, positive, fun vibes and amazing talks and everything that you're doing there. But it's also Pride Month. And I saw you were chatting or tagging, you know, with Isaias Hernandez, who's obviously queer brown vegan. We've actually had him on the podcast before. And uh, he's amazing, too. And you guys were talking about creating safe spaces for the queer community. And if you're open to it, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your experience and how we can all be better allies for the community as well. Well, thank you. And first of all, happy pride. And thank you for sharing this. And I'm, yeah, it's happy pride. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this is pride week and I'm really excited to, to, be, to be celebrating that. And as a community, I think what's really important, I think for me to to really voice as a leader in the scientific community, in the research community, in this, this space of climate, that, you know, I am a proud member of the LGBTQ community. And why is it important to say that? Because, you know, in the scientific community, there is still a tremendous amount of discrimination, fear, and yeah, there's just a, there's not a lot of good representation out there for the LGBT, 
LGBTQ community and the scientific community in the in the scientific space. And we, we see this time and time again. And there are, there are studies that are showing that there are, there are members of the community, the LGBTQ community, are choosing to get out of science because of all the discrimination they're, they're experiencing. And I think in part because there aren't a lot of leaders out there that are coming out and saying, I am part of this community. I am leading, I'm leading a team of 100 researchers from around the world, representing every walk of life. And I'm so proud that I can be a member of the LGBTQ community and to say that vocally and to not stand down and not to be quiet because too often the work that I think our community does gets overlooked, overshadowed. We get pushed into the corner. We get stood upon as a platform for others. And, and it's because, and it creates that fear to, to be, to be more vocal, to be more, to be out, to be confident and whatever I can do to be in that space, to, to, to just be truly, to be true to myself and to true to my community, to my loved ones, and to the profession I've chosen and to be able to, to maybe help others who are in this space or in this, you know, struggling to, to find their place to do what they love to do and to be accepted in that space. Maybe just seeing some of us, more of us out there coming out and saying, I am part of that. I am a leader in this space and I want to do what I can to, 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 to help others along the way. So actually, you know, one of the first times I came out publicly to the community, now I came out to my family, my friends, my own personal community a long time ago as a bisexual man. But the first time I came out on, in a public space was in 2020 at the National Council for Science and the Environment uh, annual conference. And I was giving a talk uh, or a, a part of a panel on diversity, actually, as it happened. Now, I was chosen to be on this panel to talk about the diversity of solutions that we have readily available. But my fellow panelists were coming from very different types of uh, backgrounds, um, representing indigenous peoples, different religious backgrounds, gender, you know, and, and so on. Different, different kinds of diversity in the space and really talking about that uh, in connection to sustainable work and sustain, working in sustainability. When it came to my turn to talk about the uh, diversity of solutions, I just felt really compelled. Um, and it wasn't, I was certainly not uh, there by intention to, to, to say this, but I just really felt compelled to sit there in front of an audience <laughs> And to, to say this, that, you know, that so often people in the LGBTQ community are discriminated against in science. And I just, for the first time, sat there on stage in a room full of scientists and said, I am a proud member of this community. And that was such a really defining moment for me. And that's, I think, where you saw on my Twitter, uh, where I started for the first time really trying to be a public figure in the LGBTQ community. And that was a huge turning point for me. It was a life-changing moment, I would have to say. I mean, from that point forward, I really have tried to dedicate myself to being an open, transparent person and, and trying to be a good representative of the LGBTQ community in, in the world of science, in the world of climate change. And there's a lot of work to do there, but, and it is a struggle. It is really a struggle. Every day I still struggle with, with discrimination and, and people, you know, not giving me or not seeing me in the same way as maybe others get, get viewed. And that's okay. But I, every day it's a struggle. Every day I work as hard as I can to uh, be true to myself and, and not let anybody, not let anyone stand uh, or put me down. I'm going to be, be out there open and time to stand up and not let this discrimination continue. And so I'm, I'm just, it's just really proud to, that this, to, to be here and that you've asked this question. It's the first time anyone's really asked me this question. Um, so I thank you for doing that. But I certainly just, just remembering that time since standing in front of all these scientists on stage and, and, and coming out, that was really a life changing moment. And, and yeah, and to this day, it's, it's something that's really important now in my, my mission. My the mission that I am that I'm my mission derived person now that that's now part of that. Uh, so thank you so much for bringing that up. 
Yes. Well, thank you for being so honest and so brave to take a stance in in such a public way and and really still continue to fight against the prejudice and the discrimination. I'm sure you are lighting the way for so many behind you or following in your footsteps. So it's really beautiful. And I'm glad I was able to be the first to ask you, ask you that question. And I certainly hope I am not the last and that this is a conversation that can happen more and more and be normalized so that we can also step up those around and be better allies as well for, for the community. So thank you. If you could go back to your younger self and not necessarily about this issue, just painting painting a broader stroke, but if you could go back to your younger self and give yourself some advice, what would you say? That's a fantastic question. I would say to my young self, don't let anyone tell you you can't achieve whatever you set out to do, that your pathway is going to be winding go one direction and another. There's going to be an arc. And follow the arc, follow your heart, and do so with authenticity, integrity, empathy, and compassion for yourself and for the people around you. Because if you follow that pathway, the world is going to open up to you. You're going to be able to achieve everything you ever thought possible. And you can do that. And you can, you have the ability, you have the capacity to do that and to keep your heart open to that. Be authentic, have integrity, have empathy and, and, and try to be compassionate to, to others because that's how we're going to build community. You're going to be part of that community, how you're going to be part linking arms with so many people around the world to change the world. Yeah. I think that's what I would want to, want to tell my, my young self who maybe doubted maybe didn't know whether you I was making the right choices or things happen, bumps along the road, you can overcome those and you can be full your full self when you uh when you when you just continue to persevere and you continue to allow the mission determine how you're determine the how you're walking on the pathway in life. Let the mission be let the mission derive how you are. That's so beautiful. I love it. Thank you for sharing. And how do you think we could live wide awake? (laughs) Frankly, the same characteristics I was going to tell my young self to keep in mind as you walk down the pathway of life, same characteristics that we can be woken and stay awake. Authenticity, be authentic, your authentic self and to recognize and appreciate the authenticity in others. Integrity, to have integrity of your, your word and your, your actions, and to respect the integrity of others. Empathy, be empathetic to who you are, accept who you are in yourself, and have empathy for others. And compassion, compassion for yourself, and to be open to the compassion of others. That is going to keep us that's going to allow us to be woken and to stay awake because it's, this is how we can be connected to each other. And when we're connected to each other and connected to nature in real ways, I think we can do anything. I think that's where the brilliance of humanity, humanity, not humans, but humanity comes to, comes to these when we, when we, when we embrace that. And there's nothing on the horizon that we can't achieve when we vision that together with those those characteristics. Yeah, I think they're very powerful words and lovely that it's also brought back to humanity and us working together. So I really like that. Well, Chad, this has just been wonderful, very insightful and full of passion. So what is the best way for people to get in touch with you or to follow your work? Well, please reach out and check out my website, chadfirshman.com. You can check out our work at uh, Project Drawdown at drawdown.org and reach out to me. You know, there's a there's a contact form on my website and you can also reach out at chad at drawdown.org. So whatever whatever mechanism works best for you, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. And please, come on, let's reach out. 
Amazing. Well, Chad, thank you so much for spending all this time with us and for sharing so openly about your passion and mission and, yeah, uh, I guess, uh, bravery in life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to be, I hope, authentic, having with integrity. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to be here today. And I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about today now. I mean, this has been a wonderful morning and great conversation, Stephanie. And I'm just really pleased that we can have this and, and I'm really hopeful and excited and optimistic for, for today. This has, been, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Amazing. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Chad. Firstly, no one single thing is going to save the planet and humanity. We need a system of solutions which gives us a cascading benefits towards a regenerative future. Secondly, let's not distract ourselves with silver bullets, but instead innovate our way out of existing solutions and produce more with less. And finally, follow your heart with empathy, integrity, authenticity, and compassion, and you will live a fuller, more awakened life. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you, ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake. Mm-hmm.